He was an American flautist living in London, studying at the Royal Academy of Music. At only 20 years of age, he was intelligent, gifted, talented, a prodigy. On the evening of June 24, 2009, he performed at the Academy in London Soundscapes, featuring the music of composers such as Joseph Hayden, George Frederick Handel, and Felix Mendelssohn. But his flute wasn't the only thing he brought with him the evening of his performance. He had with him a relatively large piece of luggage, a rolling suitcase that contained in it the accoutrements of a thief, gloves, a small flashlight, a pair of wire cutters, a glass cutting saw with a diamond blade. After the concert, he retrieved the suitcase from his locker and put his plan into motion, making his way towards the Natural History Museum in the town of Tring. This wasn't the first time he'd been there, but it would certainly be his last. After months of reconnaissance, investigating, casing, scouting, scrutinizing, studying, evaluating, analyzing, and planning, he was confident that he would be able to make his way around the walls, the barbed wire, the cameras, and the guards in order to get what he was there to pilfer. A collection of coveted relics of the past, many of which no longer exist anywhere in the world, unique, rare, endangered, extinct, priceless, and irreplaceable, all for a hobby that grew into an obsession and a golden flute. In this latest series, I'll be taking you across the pond to England for one of the most baffling crimes ever carried out. This is California Dreaming, and you are listening to the tale of the Great Feather Heist. Hello, dreamers, and welcome back to the show. This is an independent one-woman production, and there are a number of ways that you can support the podcast. You can leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you listen to the show on preferably five stars if you truly enjoy listening. It pushes us up the charts and helps new listeners discover us. You can recommend the show in true crime podcast fan groups. You can like our Facebook page, leave a rating for the show there too. Join our discussion group and follow us on Twitter and on Instagram. And if you would like to go above and beyond, you can support us on Patreon. For as little as a dollar a month, you will not only be helping us keep the lights on, you will also gain access to dozens of exclusive full-length episodes and multi-part series cases as well. This week, I'd like to thank Amy H., Cindy G., Ruth Ann S., Christine S., and Michael M. for either joining Patreon, raising your pledge, or coming back. By the way, There is an eight-part series on Patreon from last year entitled The Only Way Out, which is my own in-depth analysis of the controversial death of 20-year-old Morgan Ingram out of Carbondale, Colorado. I've made the first part of the series available to listen to for free for a limited time, so if you are not yet a Patreon subscriber, you can listen to that episode. It's approximately two hours long, so you can get an idea 
of what being a patron is all about. If a subscription is not your thing, you can make a one-time contribution through PayPal using our email, californiapod at gmail.com. And as I've said in all the previous episodes, this series is based on the research and investigation into this crime conducted by Kirk Johnson, who is the founder of a nonprofit called The List Project. Johnson wrote a book about this case that we are covering entitled The Feather Thief. It will be referenced in the episode and throughout the show notes. I was hoping that this would be the final part of the Great Feather High series, but it's not. It's going to have to spill over into part seven. I am actually almost done with it because I was really trying to cram it all into this episode, but it would have been way too long. So it shouldn't be out too much longer after this one so we can wrap it up. I have several other things that I am really ready to move on to that have been waiting for me, waiting for us. So let's get back to the Great Feather Heist. In part five, we left off in the middle of Edwin's sentencing hearing in the Crown Court. The prosecutor was going for the jugular, hoping to see Edwin behind bars for no less than a decade for his crimes, if possible. And his defense attorney was trying to save him from that, armed with a report from Dr. Simon Baron Cohen, diagnosing Edwin with Asperger syndrome, as well as a reference to case law Crown versus Gibson, which was about to have a profound impact on this case against Edwin. So what was this Crown versus Gibson case all about? First of all, I stated in the last part that there is very little out there on the internet from this case that dates back to 2000. Kirk Johnson shared what he was able to find out about it in his book, so I'll give you as much of a synopsis as I can because this is one of those cases where you really can't make this stuff up. So in this case that Edwin's attorney cited for the Crown judge to take into consideration when working out Edwin's sentencing, Crown versus Gibson, at the time that Edwin was facing his punishment, it had been 12 years or so since that particular crime had been committed back in 2000. A 21-year-old man named Simon Gibson, along with a couple of friends of his, snuck into a cemetery in Bristol called Arnos Vale. It's a cemetery that dates back to the 1800s. They snuck through the entrance and made their way over to a crypt. The door to the crypt was secured with a large padlock. Gibson had a hammer with him, which he used to break the lock. This crypt held 34 coffins going back to the early 1800s. Each of them was adorned with an engraved plaque that had the name of the person inside each of the coffins. So these three guys creeping around this crypt claimed that they were only there to look around. But I say, if that's the case, then why bring the hammer? Sounds like they wanted to break stuff or break into stuff, which is crazy because this is a cemetery and the only thing to break into would be the crypts and burial places of the deceased, which I find to be a strange activity for three young men to want to go out and do for fun. But whatever, different strokes for different folks, I guess. As they took a closer look, one of them noticed that 
one of the crypts was damaged. So they were able to move the broken pieces out of the way in order to expose the coffin that was inside. And from there, they did what one does when one encounters an exposed coffin. They pried it open and ended up stealing some of the vertebrae bones and the skull. In order to make it appear as though nothing was amiss, Gibson put a new padlock on the crypt door, which he brought with him, so that kind of leads us to believe that there was some measure of planning that went into this, that they weren't just there to quote-unquote look around. And I would have to say that this is one of the first times that I can think of when a criminal brought a brand new lock with him in order to replace the lock that he intended to break. That's definitely a new one for me. So when they got back to their flat, I don't know if they were roommates or what, but they cleaned off the stolen bones with bleach and rinsed everything off outside with the garden hose. And then they took the pieces of the vertebrae and made a necklace out of it, as one does. I told you, you can't make this stuff up. That apparently did not creep these guys out at all because they returned to the cemetery to break in again. But this time they brought a crowbar with them so they could really get to the hard to get into coffins, I guess. But when they opened up the next coffin, the fact that the body wasn't fully skeletonized yet was enough to deter them from actually messing with it. I mean, I guess even grave robbers have to draw the line somewhere. In order to not leave completely empty-handed, they decided to steal a flower vase. As they say the third time's a charm, I don't know how these kids have the nerve to do this stuff. I mean, can you see yourself sneaking into a centuries-old cemetery, not one, not two, but three times, in order to pry open coffins to see what sort of goodies you might find? What happened in their lives for this to be a fun night out? Did they watch too many horror movies? Or does this have something to do with the music that they like to listen to? Or the video games that they played? Did they have some sort of thing for the occult or the black arts? I mean, who hurt them? Or is this just out of curiosity? I don't know. I just don't think I'd be comfortable knowing these people going around prying open crypts and coffins. It just doesn't sound like a good time to me, but that's just me. So for their third trip back to the cemetery, things took a turn for the weird. Along with their tools, these guys also brought alcohol, candles, and a camera. This time, whatever it was they did to the coffin or coffins, If they pried one or more of them open again, they decided, hey, let's take some selfies with these corpses. Gibson even striking a pose while he held up someone's skull. Really strange. But then everything went stupid. These guys, okay. So they took their film to be developed at a shopping center in Bristol. I don't know how all this worked in 2000. I assume this was a situation where they could drop off their film and have it developed in an hour or so. But when that happened, whoever it was that developed the pictures did not seem to take issue 
with the photos that these guys had on that film, or they thought maybe it was fake. They had to think it was fake because who does this, right? Who would even think it was real? However, these knuckleheads dropped some of the pictures on their way out of the mall after they picked them up. A mall cop found the photos and he obviously felt like there was something much more weird going on in those pictures than a bunch of guys posing with Halloween decorations. He seemed to know that they were real, so he contacted the police. They traced the transaction from where they got the film developed because, you know, when you used to drop off film, you'd fill out that little envelope with your information on the outside. Man, that seems like forever ago, right? Well, anyway, the police made their way to Simon Gibson's home. Upon searching the place, they found the items stolen from the cemetery, the skull, the vertebrae necklace, and the flower vase, which was apparently Gibson's brand new dining table centerpiece. For their crimes, the Crown Court sentenced Gibson, who they considered to have been the lead knucklehead, to a year and a half in prison, calling his crimes offensive to the living and disrespectful to the dead. His two co-knuckleheads were given slightly shorter sentences. As it turned out, when Gibson appealed his sentence, he was diagnosed by his psychologist as having Asperger syndrome. His attorney described him as having an uncontrollable obsession with skeletons, and he actually compared Gibson being inside a crypt to being akin to a chocolate lover being allowed to run amok in a chocolate candy factory. The defense insisted that the judge made a mistake by not taking Gibson's diagnosis into consideration when considering his sentence. Two days after the appeals hearing, all three knuckleheads were let out of prison. And for this reason, Edwin's attorney cited the Gibson case when asking the judge to take his same Asperger's diagnosis into consideration when working out his sentence. The crown judge wanted to spend some time in his chambers to mull it over. And finally, later that same afternoon, everyone was called back into the courtroom to hear what he had decided when it came to Edwin's final sentence. And for this, I will use the direct quotes from the judge transcribed in Kirk Johnson's book. Edwin Rist, you are 22 years old. You've no criminal convictions. You are a gifted and highly intelligent musician who's currently studying at the Royal College of Music. You were in your teens a gifted and internationally known fly tire. In November of 2008, you fraudulently obtained permission to photograph items at the Natural History Museum in Tring. Using your knowledge of what was there, you broke into a block at that museum on the night of the 23rd to the 24th of June 2009 and stole 299 bird skins. They were taken, I have no doubt, for financial gain, but principally to enable you to use the feathers for fly tying. The loss of the feathers is a natural history disaster of world proportions. These were, in effect, priceless specimens, both in terms of their financial value, but also in terms of their scientific interest. They are literally, in many cases, irreplaceable. And then in speaking of Dr. Baron Cohen's report on Edwin's diagnosis, the Crown Judge stated, The public may consider that such a serious offense as this would quite properly merit a lengthy prison sentence. 
However, I have been directed to a case called Gibson in the Court of Appeal almost 10 years ago, which has much in it to assist me to evaluate how the diagnosis of Asperger's should be dealt with by the courts. I have read extensively from that case to assist not only you, but members of the public, and to assist those who may read the newspapers and understand why it is that I am taking the course of action which I do. Mr. Gibson's case, in terms of his obsessional behavior, is in one sense no different from yours. Were I to pass a substantial prison sentence upon you, which would be wholly merited by the value, if not the pricelessness, of the items that you stole, no doubt on one view, the public would commend me, and on another view of the Court of Appeal in my judgment would severely criticize me in the light of the attitude which they display in the case of Gibson as to the appropriate course that trial judges should take when faced with somebody suffering from this syndrome. And in looking directly at Edwin, the judge continued, All that can be done is to try to support you and attempt to ensure that this sort of behavior is not repeated. Edwin was then sentenced to a 12-month suspended sentence. As long as he stayed out of trouble for an entire year, he would serve no jail time. This sentence surprised many in the fly-tying community when they found out that Edwin received no jail time for this crime. Some were pretty outraged, some were kind of dumbfounded. Others really had no reaction at all. I think it kind of falls in line with what we know about the justice system in the UK. I don't think the judge wanted to be second-guessed during the appeals process. When you look at Edwin's case and you stack it up against Simon Gibson's case, I mean, I get the parallels, but Gibson was originally sentenced to 18 months in jail. This prosecutor wanted Edwin jailed until he was in his 30s. Once Edwin's judge realized his sentence might be overturned if he handed down a lengthy jail term, I think he felt comfortable using the Gibson case as a justification for giving Edwin no jail time. The fly-tying community also didn't buy the Asperger's defense either. I don't know how many of them are professional psychologists in the bunch, but they were quick to point out that Edwin never showed any of the symptoms of someone who has really been diagnosed with it. Edwin was officially considered a pariah in the fly-tying community, and everybody did what they could to distance themselves from him. When it came to school at the Royal Academy, it was almost as if nothing had ever happened. I know that when it comes to conduct, elite schools like the Royal Academy might have kicked Edwin out because of his felony criminal conviction, but much to everyone's surprise, especially Edwin's, the Academy had absolutely nothing to say about it and took no action. He would be graduating with his class. He would be earning his degree on June 30th, 2012. And he was scheduled to audition for a symphony orchestra in Germany on June 7th. There was only one more hearing Edwin needed to attend. And that was when they were going to work out how much he was going to have to pay in restitution and this amount was going to be pretty high. The prosecutor worked out a figure amounting to approximately 125,150 pounds, that's 204,753 U.S. dollars, and they were going to give him six months to pay it, which 
seems kind of like an unrealistic amount of money for a 22-year-old, but okay. The point of all that was, I mean, the very least the court wanted to do was make sure to impose a very stiff fine with a limited time to pay it in order to send the message that this is the consequence of attempting to make money through criminal activity. As far as the customers who purchased bird skins from Edwin were concerned, Detective Hopkins and her team of investigators were not going to attempt to pursue any of them in an effort to retrieve any of the remaining skins. They figured that their feathers would have probably already been harvested and they most likely didn't have their bio data tags attached to them, so there was no point. But Edwin did give some names, a, a handful of names, of the people he sold bird skins to. So there were some names floating around that might be on police radar. Several of the customers that we discussed through this series who purchased skins from Edwin did return what they had left of the skins to the train, but many of them had already had their feathers plucked out and they did fully intend to sue Edwin in order to get back the money that they had paid him for the skins. In the meantime, Edwin's dad, Curtis, he was trying as best he could to make those who purchased skins from his son whole again, but also wanted to ensure that they were not going to file any lawsuits against him in the future. Jens Pilgard, he had purchased several birds from Edwin for like $6,000, and he threw in a Malayan peacock pheasant. Well, he wanted to try to get the pheasant back, which was confiscated by police along with all the other bird skins that Edwin had left in his flat. When Jens contacted Detective Hopkin by email, he included Edwin's dad in the CCs. I don't know what became of the pheasant, but Edwin's dad did contact Jens, and he did tell him that if he could give him a total on how much he was owed and how much the pheasant was worth, that he would be able to pay him. But he did say that he would not do so if Jens planned on filing a lawsuit. It goes without saying that everyone Curtis was trying to speak to about repayment was angry. Jens did get all the skins that he purchased from Edwin back to the train, but he never did receive any payment from Edwin's dad. Of the couple of buyers that Edwin had named, the one who took this whole ordeal the hardest, it seemed like, was Dave Karn. He was the one who had asked his mom for a loan so he would be able to buy an Indian crow skin, which he had been searching for for years. He broke down into tears when he got the email from Edwin's dad about what his son had done and how he went about obtaining the bird skins. Edwin's dad, because he sensed Dave Karn was hesitant to send back the Indian crow because he had wanted it so badly. His dad kind of sort of issued a threat that he was going to have to have the police on his doorstep if he did not return the bird skin to the museum. Dave was very fearful of getting arrested for having received stolen goods. And if police went to his house to collect the bird skins, he would most likely lose every single feather that he owned because the police were certainly not going to sit there and pick through which of his feathers were stolen and which one were legitimately his. This really got him upset. How could he sit there and prove which feathers were which? So he sent the bird back to the museum. He was told that he could sue Edwin to get his money back, though 
he might have to get in line. It took a while, but Edwin's dad did eventually pay Dave Karn back the money that he paid for the skin, with the promise to not sue Edwin in the future. The admin of the classic fly tying website continued to demand that there be no post regarding Edwin Rist or the burglary at the Trang Museum. But you know, it's easy to just click on over to Reddit if you really wanted the dirt. But no, if you came onto the fly tying site and mentioned either one of those topics, your post would be removed. Eventually, the dust settled and people started posting about feathers for sale once again. They had all stopped out of concern that they'd be accused of selling ill-gotten feathers, especially if they were from the same species that Edwin had taken from the museum. But all of that subsided and people were slowly getting back to business. Were any of the feathers listed on the website from Edwin's take from the museum? There's no real way to tell. What I can say is everyone would deny it. And the demand was as strong as ever, if not more so. When it came to Detective Adele Hopkin, she was very pleased with the way that her department was able to solve the case, even though it took more time than it really should have. She came away with a better understanding and appreciation for the museum and what its contents meant to natural history and British history. She'd be lying if she said she wasn't disappointed that Edwin ended up spending zero days in jail, with that exception of the few hours in his visitor suite. But she had to respect the system and the decisions of the Crown judge. The Crown prosecutor, he was a bit put off by the whole Asperger's defense winning out in the end. If not for the diagnosis provided by Dr. Baron Cohen, he was certain that Edwin would have spent a significant amount of time in prison. But like Detective Hopkin, he had to respect the process. When it came to the curators and the staff at the Natural History Museum, it was going to take some time for them to get over the loss caused by Edwin. They took it very hard, and they were hard on themselves over it for allowing it to happen. But they kept their deep sadness over it as private as they could. Publicly, to the media, they were pacifistic about it all they expressed their gratitude that the case was over and everyone could move on they were grateful for all the efforts everyone put forth in helping to bring back as many of the missing bird skins back to the museum as possible but also acknowledged the destruction that edwin's actions had on the country's priceless collections kirk johnson gave us a final tally in his book There were a total of 299 birds that were listed as stolen. 102 of them were recovered intact, still with their bio data tags. 72 of the birds were intact but did not have their bio data tags. 19 of the birds were shipped back to the museum from people who had purchased them from Edwin, but those also did not have their tags. Some of those were people Edwin named or did so on their own, wanting to return the birds to their rightful place. The museum also kept dozens of baggies of feathers, but in all, 106 birds were still unaccounted for. Of those birds that remained missing were some of the Indian crows, the blue chatterers, 
kingbirds of paradise, and resplendent quetzals. Their value was estimated to be approximately $400,000. They did not factor in the value of some of the other missing species of birds, including the crimson fruit crows, the flame bower birds, the magnificent rifle birds, superb birds of paradise, and blue birds of paradise, because they are so extremely rare and hard to find on the market, it's impossible to determine what their worth truly is. And this estimate of $400,000 is based on the selling of the whole bird skin. If the feathers of the birds were to be harvested and sold individually, the market value would be much, much higher. But author Kirk Johnson still had questions. And much of what he goes over in his book from this point forward was his quest to answer those questions. Where are the 106 remaining missing birds? Did Edwin sell them and they just couldn't find them? And did he take the money from those sales and squirrel it away somewhere? Does Edwin have the birds hidden away or is someone hiding them for him? As far as anybody could tell, Nobody was making any real effort to find the missing 106. But Kirk Johnson kind of wanted answers. And he wanted to know where those birds were. The rest of Kirk's book is about his personal quest to see if he could find out what happened to the rest of the birds. If you're interested in hearing the synopsis of his journey, then keep listening. And I will say I wouldn't do this if I didn't find it completely fascinating. Otherwise, we're pretty much done mostly with Edwin. He's going to come back into the story a little bit later. You're probably going to want to hear it. But if you do a quick search on the internet, the last you'll find about him is that he lives in Germany, plays the flute. Spoiler, Kirk Johnson will go and fly to Germany to interview Edwin eventually. He is now living under a different name as well. This is the part of Kirk Johnson's book that the fly tying community criticized heavily. How Kirk wanted to be some kind of Captain Save-A-Bird. But I found it compelling and a good read. So I'll go ahead and share some of his experiences after he was finished researching Edwin and the Feather Heist. In a way, I kind of got the feeling that Kirk Johnson pursued things very similarly to the way that Edwin did, to perfection. A couple of weeks after Kirk learned about Edwin's crime from his fly fishing guide in New Mexico, it had been only about four months since Edwin was sentenced. Kirk had had a teleconference regarding his organization, The List Project, having been asked to participate in a meeting with President Barack Obama's top advisors. If you recall, Kirk Johnson's List Project was an organization focused on helping Iraqi refugees who had previously worked for agencies affiliated with the United States who might be finding themselves and their families in danger because of their affiliation with the United States to safely relocate. Well, that teleconference conversation that Kirk had apparently did not go well. Things got heated as Kirk often received a lot of resistance from the government when it came to his project. So when he got off that call, he immediately wanted to blow off some steam by going fly fishing for trout at the Rio Grande in New Mexico. 
Kirk was consumed with the time that he had spent in Iraq, working to try to fix what war had destroyed in a country that had absolutely no desire to have any Americans there. He struggled with and continues to struggle with PTSD from an experience that nearly cost him his life, only to return to the United States with a mission to help those he felt the government had abandoned, only to come face to face with the same resistance from his own government that he felt that he encountered with the Iraqi government. The bottom line, the powers that be didn't want any Iraqi refugees, period. They didn't want to deal with it. It didn't matter if they had been allies. The United States government continued to supply Kirk with a broken record of excuses. The feather thief had been a much needed distraction and really saved him from sinking into a deep depression. As captivated with flute playing and fly tying that we have come to find that Edwin Rist was, so was Kirk Johnson with Edwin Rist. He started off by looking for Edwin on ClassicFlyTying.com. He found a few posts from a couple of years back when he was selling feathers so he could buy a new flute. He also found the post banning all discussions about Edwin and the Tring heist. He also found Edwin's eBay account and some videos of him playing his flute on YouTube. And Kirk Johnson was in the same position that many of us were in when we first started this case. He wasn't sure how he was going to track down the story or if he'd even be able to track down Edwin. He didn't know a thing about Victorian era salmon fly tying. When he started looking into the community, he found it to be somewhat of a bizarre cult of people and was perplexed as to how that is what inspired Edwin to do what he did. For the love of Victorian salmon flies, we get this peculiar crime. Then Kirk immersed himself in salmon fly tying. He spent more time with his fishing guide, asking a barrage of questions about salmon flies, about people who have a passion for it. He wanted to familiarize himself with the lingo, the terminology, and what it all meant. He really wanted to try and find out what all the hype was. So his fishing guide invited him over and taught Kirk how to tie a salmon fly called the Red Rover while telling him the near mystical ways they connected these feathers to these hooks. As they tied, they talked. Kirk brought up the 106 birdskins that were still missing from the museum and that they could potentially be worth more than half a million dollars. Did he think those birdskins were still floating around somewhere amongst the fly tires? His fishing guide told him that if he really wanted to know where those birds might be, if they were in the hands of the fly tires, then the best place that he could start looking would be at the upcoming International Fly Tying Symposium in Somerset, New Jersey. Well, Kirk is a busy guy, but when he checked his schedule, he came to discover that he had quietly been uninvited by the National Security Council to speak to President Obama's top aides for the foreseeable future, so instead of booking a flight to Washington, D.C., he booked a flight to New Jersey instead. He decided to put his problems with the government on the back burner and see if he could find any of the missing birds at the symposium instead. 
priorities, right? I get it, and I respect it. The fly tying community might loathe Kirk Johnson, but I'm not part of that, and he sure as heck got me interested. I mean, all the ads I'm getting on Facebook these days are about fishing gear. Not that I'm going to take up the sport, but I learned a lot more than I expected, and I'm really not mad at that. Uh, The ads are kind of annoying, but this whole thing has been quite a learning experience. The first person that Kirk saw when he arrived at the location where the symposium was being held has been mentioned several times throughout his book. His name was John McLean. He was the person that Edwin bought feathers from when he started off as a kid, earning money doing yard work for his neighbors. Kirk wanted to talk to him about Edwin, but after noticing a large cut across his face, the fact that he finished a cigarette in three drags, and gave Kirk a dirty look as he walked towards the entrance of the hotel, he decided to just keep moving along. Inside the symposium were fly tires everywhere, shopping for feathers in the main hall, which was filled with vendor booths, not just selling feathers, but also books and animal fur and tinsel and hooks, all the materials fly tires could possibly need. I thought it was kind of funny when in his book, Kirk described seeing a cluster of men with handlebar mustaches and members-only jackets congregated around the booths of celebrity fly tires who bowed over their vices in monastic concentration, peering through vision magnifiers as they coked feathers onto the hook. What the hell was I doing here? Going to that symposium in person was way, way more next level than just looking around at fly-tying websites. Kirk started to feel kind of stupid being there. He had with him his information about the birds that were stolen from the museum, but he really had no business being there at all. Doing his best to blend in, and spoiler, it didn't go well, he noticed one of the booths belonged to someone he recognized from the online forums, a gentleman by the name of Roger Plourd, Plourd, P-L-O-U-R-D, Plourd. He was demonstrating tying a salmon fly for a small audience. So Kirk, hoping to be as invisible as possible, quietly made his way over to Roger's booth. The reason Kirk really noticed Roger in the form in the first place was a fly that he had design dedicated to the 9-11 terrorist attacks called the America Fly. It was made out of red, white, and blue silk tied with gold tinsel and feathers from seven different birds. When it was auctioned off, Roger's America Fly netted $350. But Kirk also noticed all of the storage bins that Roger had next to him in his booth filled with bird parts for sale. And this is a quote from the book, one bin filled with Ziplocs, of severed parakeet heads, all frozen in mid-chirp. So somehow Kirk mustered up the nerve and asked Roger if he had any Indian crow or a blue chatterer, admittedly trying to sound as nonchalant and casual about it as possible. I guess for future reference, if any of us wants to attend an international fly-tying symposium, All we need to do is bring our handlebar mustaches and members-only jackets and we'll fit right in. 
Roger looked up from the fly that he was tying. He gave him the up and down once over. And after the awkward momentary stare, Roger handed Kirk a large folder that he had stashed under his table. And as he stood there and turning the inserts filled with orange and blue feathers, he couldn't help but wonder why he had these stashed out of sight. What was he trying to hide? Maybe it's because he shouldn't be having these feathers. And that's because he may have gotten them illegally. Perhaps they had come from the Natural History Museum in Trang, and he might get in trouble for selling them. Kirk even wondered if there were any undercover agents from the Fish and Wildlife Service lurking around. Finally, after flipping through a few of the inserts, Kirk asked Roger how much the set of orange Indian crow feathers were. He told him, 90 bucks. Kirk's response was, oh wow, okay. At that moment, Roger could tell that Kirk wasn't even remotely serious about buying feathers, so he turned his attention back to the fly that he was working on. In order to try to get to the heart of the matter, Kirk blurted out that he was working on an article about the birdskins that had been stolen from the Natural History Museum in England. Roger's face automatically went from disinterest to pissed, and he grabbed his binder back from Kirk and shoved it back under his table without saying a word, and then he went back to the fly that he was working on. What a pleasant bunch of individuals these fly tires can be, aren't they? Well, after a painfully awkward silence, Roger finally suggested that Kirk probably doesn't want to write this story. Kirk asked him why he shouldn't write it, and Roger told him, quote, We are a tight-knit community, and you do not want to piss us off. Kirk sheepishly glanced around at everyone who had been watching Roger as they were all now staring at him disapprovingly. Now, dreamers, I've watched a couple of interviews that Kirk has given, and he shares this sentiment in his book. But in the moment that he received that threat of sorts from Roger about you don't want to piss any of us off, his mind immediately flashed to his work in Fallujah, Iraq, the conflicts that he's had with his own government. And there was just something oddly euphoric about being threatened by a guy holding some specks of tiny bird feathers between his fingers. Kirk felt like there had to be more to this than meets the eye because he was like, what's with the hostility if there wasn't? After a few moments, Roger finally turned to Kirk and said, I did not buy any of the birds that that kid was selling, okay? And it was all downhill from there for the rest of the time that Kirk was at the symposium. The word spread quickly that he was not one of them. That was Kirk's bad for not showing up with the handlebar mustache and the members-only jacket. He was this intruder invading their territory. All Kirk could do from then on was walk around for the remainder of his time there while 200 men grimaced at his very presence. If he asked anyone about the birds, all he got back were blank stares and disdainful grins. So this left Kirk feeling pretty discouraged that this whole trip to this fly-tying symposium in New Jersey was going to end up being a waste. So he decided to go ahead and take his chances on the first person that he had recognized right before he entered the venue, John McClain. 
He was a retired law enforcement officer who ended up becoming one of the more well-known online feather dealers in the fly tying community. Kirk went over and visited his booth, and while he stood there and listened as John chatted with other fly tires, there was just something about his vibe that Kirk kind of connected with. It was almost as if John felt as out of place there as he did. Maybe he wouldn't be so standoffish and protective as everyone else had been, so Kirk took the chance. What the heck, he's got nothing else to lose. He approached John and asked if he would be willing to talk to him about the burglary at the Trang Museum. John thought about it for a second, then he said, yeah, why not? It felt like he needed a break from these fly-tying and fly-fishing enthusiasts, and he could really use a smoke. So they went outside and chatted. First off, Kirk wanted to know how real the risk was in them discussing this forbidden topic. John kind of laughed and insinuated, yeah, if you're not careful, you're going to end up sleeping with the fishes, right? Kirk felt comfortable diving right in. He wanted to know about Edwin. John expressed how shocked that he was that a smart kid like him would have done something so dumb. But he did say that he understood how strong the desire for those bird feathers are within the community. John said, quote, Everybody joneses after real Indian crow. You look at these adult men that get all weak in the knees, all over a handful of stupid little feathers. I mean, it's really bizarre when you think about it. But he did not share the opinion that Edwin's actions were leaving a permanent black mark on the community as a whole. That it wasn't as big of a deal as everyone is seeming to make out of it. The only thing that might change is fly tires will never be allowed back into the bird vault at the museum ever again. And when John reflected back on his time in law enforcement, he just didn't feel like that there was a place in prison for a person like Edwin. Prison was for violent offenders, not this kid who stole dead birds for their feathers. To John, it was nothing more than a petty property crime. Kirk didn't exactly agree with that sentiment. He felt like the theft was a bit more substantial than your everyday run-of-the-mill property crime. Most property is replaceable, after all. Kirk did point out that Edwin did steal 299 birds from the museum. That is quite a significant number of specimens, and many of them have not yet been recovered. But then John pointed out something that Kirk hadn't thought of. Did you ever think to ask the museum curators when the last time they took a complete inventory of their birds was? Kirk was confused and asked for clarification. And John told him, they have hundreds of thousands of birds. And so Edwin breaks in and they take account and they find 299 are missing. But that's based on the last time they actually took inventory, which was probably at least 10 years ago, possibly longer. How do they know when all 299 birds were taken? Can they honestly say that they know that Edwin took all that were missing? Kirk thought about what John was telling him. He continued by telling him, look, I'm just saying they think it was Edwin who took all 299 birds, but they can't really say for sure because it had been a long time since anybody last counted them and they know it. They didn't take an inventory of their birds the day before Edwin broke in. They didn't even take an annual inventory. 
You can ask when the last time they counted their birds was, but you probably won't get a straight answer if you get any answer at all. Heck, they didn't even know anything was missing for more than a month. John went and finished his second cigarette and excused himself back to his booth in the symposium. Kirk was kind of at a loss as to what to do with this new slice of information. This theory that perhaps it wasn't Edwin who was responsible for all 299 missing birds hadn't even occurred to him. When you're talking about hundreds of thousands of birds, chances are the curators miscounted their inventory. Maybe birds slowly trickled out over the years and Edwin didn't take as many as initially thought. And maybe the search for the missing 106 was a fruitless one because Perhaps there aren't 106 still missing. Maybe they've recovered everything that there is to be recovered. And Kirk was wasting his time trying to solve a mystery when there wasn't even one to begin with. The ones who might be able to answer those questions for him were perhaps the curators at the Trang Museum or Edwin himself. Kirk first tried Edwin. He sent an email asking if he would be willing to talk to him about the case. Edwin turned him down, which didn't surprise Kirk, but he had to try. And Dreamers, he wasn't going to give up after one email, but for now, he decided to try and speak to the trained curators. But in their replies, they weren't really attempting to nail down a solid commitment to be interviewed and sent Kirk links to their statements to the press, which he had already read. He kind of got tired of getting the runaround from the museum. He wanted to figure out how accurate their bird inventory was. Otherwise, there was no point in moving forward on this quest to track down the missing 106. So Kirk was like, screw it. I'll just go to the museum in person and ask them my questions face to face. He sent the curators one more email telling him when he'd be in town and that he'd have a series of questions that he was looking for answers to. When Kirk traveled to England, it was winter time. He was trying to duplicate the same trip that Edwin took when he rode the train from London to Trang the evening that he broke into the museum. Kirk had gone over every detail of every leg of Edwin's journey. He already knew it by heart when his train arrived at the station that Edwin had arrived at with his suitcase filled with his burglary tools. One of the places that he passed was the police station, which was on the way from the train station to the museum where Detective Hopkin worked. Kirk had contacted her by email asking for an interview, but he had yet to receive a reply. Kirk did have an appointment with the curators at the museum, but it wasn't until the next day. But he didn't travel this far just to let an entire day go to waste, so he paid a visit to the museum ahead of his appointment. He went through the bird exhibits, of course, but he eventually made his way to the rhinoceros exhibit. He noticed that there were surveillance cameras trained on the rhinos along with the sign indicating that the horns on the rhinos that were on display were fake. As it turns out, just a couple of months after Edwin was given that 12-month suspended sentence, on the evening of August 27, 2011, a man named Darren Bennett broke in through the main front windows of the Natural History Museum and using a mallet or some kind of similar tool, knocked the horns off the rhinoceros from India 
as well as the northern white rhino and ran off back through the broken window with the horns. In Kirk's book, at the time that he wrote this chapter or this section about Darren Bennett breaking into the museum, Kirk said that there were only six northern white rhinos left in existence due to being hunted for centuries for their horns, which are believed to have medicinal purposes. But there's no official confirmation that there's any truth to that. But in addition to that, in the last several decades, the demand for these northern white rhino horns grew even more due to the theory put forth by Chinese men that the horns hold the cure for erectile dysfunction. And in addition to that, there's a population of Vietnamese people who use rhino horns to be manufactured into some form of party or club drugs. Rhino horns are made out of keratin, and the ones stolen by Darren Bennett, he would have been able to sell them for well over a quarter of a million dollars in the illegal wildlife trade. Well, that's what he would have been able to get, somewhere between three hundred and four hundred thousand dollars if the horns that he had stolen were actually real rhinoceros horns. Several months before Dum Dum Darren busted into the Trang Museum for those rhino horns, an alert had gone out about a spike in break-ins at several museums across Europe with thieves targeting rhino exhibits. So in response, Trang curators had fake replica horns made out of plaster and replaced all the real horns with those. I'm not sure how far Darren made it with his horns, or if he even ever realized that they were fake before he was caught, but he ended up being arrested and taken to court and sentenced to 10 months in prison, as opposed to Edwin's no prison time, all for stealing a couple of pieces of plaster. I did say a few moments ago that Kirk Johnson, as of the writing of his book, said that there were six northern white rhinos in existence. The northern white rhino used to be found in numerous parts of East and Central Africa, south of the Saharan Desert. As of March 19, 2018, there are only two northern white rhinos left, and both of them are female. Their names are Najin and Fatu. And unless there are any unknown males left somewhere in the wild in Africa. This species is functionally extinct, meaning their population is no longer viable due to the inability to reproduce. The two females belong to a zoo in the Czech Republic, but they live in a Kenyan conservancy in an enclosure under the watchful eye of armed guards around the clock. Najin was born in captivity in 1989 and is the mother of the other living female, Fatu, who was born in 2000. Najin's father was a white northern rhino named Sudan. He was caught in the wild in 1975, but he died on March 19, 2018. When the last four remaining rhinos were transported to Kenya to prevent them from causing injuries to each other, it was decided that they would be given sedatives and have their horns removed. This was also an effort 
to make them essentially worthless to poachers, which is what drove their species to extinction. After their horns were removed, they were fitted with tracking devices so their whereabouts could be monitored. Starting in the spring of 2010, efforts were made to save the species to try and get them to mate. However, it is they go about doing that. I don't know. It was reported on the Conservancy's website that Najin did mate with a male rhino named Sunni, but there was no pregnancy. Then it was said that there was a point when Najin did become pregnant, but suffered a miscarriage, and this resulted in her no longer being able to become pregnant again. In 2015, there was a plan developed to try and reproduce the northern white rhino using the living rhino's reproductive cells and stem cells. In the future, the hope is that they will be able to mature the stem cells into specific cells once the technology advances. The DNA of at least 12 white northern rhinos are preserved and is currently being stored at genetic banks in Berlin, Germany and in San Diego, California. In 2019, 10 egg cells were taken from both Najin and Fatu, which were going to be artificially inseminated with frozen sperm of a northern white rhino. In September of 2019, it was reported that the egg cells had been fertilized in vitro with frozen sperm and that they had two viable embryos. Another embryo was created four months later in January of 2020. All three of those are currently being stored in liquid nitrogen, and the next step is to hopefully implant those embryos in southern white rhinos, which are living at the San Diego Zoo. While the southern white rhino is considered threatened, there are an estimated 19,000 to 21,000 still living in the wild. So the females at the San Diego Zoo will be able to be the surrogate moms to their northern counterparts. In December of 2020, 14 more eggs were taken from Fatu. Eight of them were fertilized in vitro, with two of them being viable. So currently, there are nine embryos in storage. The gestation period is about 16 to 18 months, and the average lifespan of a northern white rhino is 40 to 50 years. So it would be kind of amazing if the northern white rhino could be brought back from extinction. And that was a little sidetracky, but I thought it was kind of interesting. So let's get back to Kirk and his visit to the Tring Museum. He went back the next day for his appointment. All he really wanted to know is if he wasn't going to be wasting his time trying to track down the missing 106 birdskins that Edwin had been convicted of stealing, if there was a chance that the curators at the museum weren't keeping up with regularly taking inventory of their birds. Based on what John McLean had told him that day outside the fly tying symposium, Kirk had really began questioning how well the museum kept their records and tracked their inventory. After all, it was only a matter of months following Edwin's sentence for his crimes when Darren Bennett broke into the very same museum and managed to make off with several rhino horns, albeit fake rhino horns. But the break-in did happen, he did get in, and he successfully got out with the horns. If it was this simple to break into this place, who's to say people haven't been slipping birds into their pockets for years by then? As Kirk signed in to the museum's guest book, 
He began going back to see if he could find where Edwin had signed in, but before he could, he was called into a conference room by one of the museum's employees. He sat down while he waited for one of their other curators to join him. He looked over at a table where birds Edwin had taken were being kept on some trays. Some of them were still in the evidence bags that the police had placed them in when they collected them from Edwin's flat. There was also a pile of resealable baggies filled with feathers. Edwin had even taken the time to draw little happy faces on each of the bags that he filled. The ornithology curator, Mark Adams, and Dr. Robert Priest-Jones, caretaker of the non-fossilized bird collections, sat down with Kirk. He could tell that this was the absolute last thing that they wanted to be doing right then, talking about Edwin Rist. But Kirk really didn't care. He was on a mission. And right off the bat, as soon as he opened his mouth, Kirk managed to thoroughly offend both of these gentlemen by telling them that when he went to the fly tying symposium, the general sentiment was not really understanding why it was so important for the museum to keep so many of the same bird over and over again in this collection of hundreds of thousands of birds. Why don't they sell some of them since these fly tying enthusiasts only use their beautiful feathers to create these unique works of art. That is far more meaningful to them than keeping all of these beautiful birds locked up in a vault. Dr. Priest Jones glared at Kirk, and according to his book, he said, quote, The United Kingdom does not spend millions of pounds on the Natural History Museum so the stuff isn't used. It's underwriting a resource that is of immense scientific importance, and I am not able to make an intelligent response to that nonsense. The world owes a debt to the knowledge unlocked by these specimens. Wallace and Darwin drew upon them to formulate their theory of evolution through natural selection, and in the midst of the 20th century, scientists compared historic specimens in the museum's egg collection to show that shells had grown thinner and less viable after the introduction of DDT pesticides, which were eventually banned. Feather samples from 150 years worth of seabird skins were used to document the rising mercury levels in the oceans, which contributes to the declines in animal populations and creates public health implications for people who eat mercury-laden fish. These bird plumes hold the memories of the oceans. The doctor continued to lecture Kirk, and I'm paraphrasing here. Some of these birds were placed in this museum's vault before the word scientist had ever been used. Every advancement in science needs these birds from hundreds of years ago. The scientist looking at any of these bird skins in 1850 could never have imagined what the scientist looking at the same bird skin in 2010 would have been able to see and know and learn. This museum has made it so the birds from hundreds of years ago will be available to scientists and researchers from countless disciplines for hundreds of years to come. And Edwin came along and desecrated a significant part of the natural history of our planet. How could anyone not be absolutely offended by that? All in the name of fly fishing. Dr. Priest-Jones was like, I just can't with this kid. I just can't. 
They've spent generations protecting these birds from everything from bugs to Nazis. Yet this punk-ass American kid comes along, exploited their trust, and punched a huge hole in their history with little hope of ever fixing it. The doctor pointed to the flame bowerbird skins that Edwin stole. He took 17 of them. 17 was all that they had. Of all the museums in the world, those 17 were more than half of what all of them have put together. It's damage that cannot be undone. The doctor next pointed to the resplendent Quetzals. Edwin stole 39 of them. They managed to get 29 of them back with their tags, but Edwin had cut off their 24-inch long emerald tails. What disappointed them even more so is the fact that Edwin went ahead and pleaded guilty that effectively put an end to the police involvement in the investigation into this case. There were still many missing skins out there, but they no longer had the help of law enforcement in tracking them down. But Kirk still wondered if the trained curators had an accurate accounting of how many birds were still missing. As much as he didn't want to sound like an asshole, he really had to pose the question. So I talked to some fly tires and they seemed to think that the museum pretty much got everything back that Edwin had taken and that any miscalculations is due to the fact that the museum didn't maintain accurate and up-to-date inventories of the birds that they had on hand. Dr. Priest Jones snapped at Kirk and was like, what knowledge do any of these people have about our museum? Nothing. And Kirk also asked, what if I could find the missing birds? And the doctor told him, yeah, good luck with that. They'd have to be fully intact with their biodata tags. Otherwise, they're worthless and useless to science. Well, Kirk's allotted time to speak to the doctor and the curator was running out, probably much to their relief. But Kirk told them that they had shown much more decorum than he would have if he had been in their shoes. And the doctor explained to him it's as simple as this. We're British, not American. Well, alrighty then, that feels like a burn, but okay. I think Kirk walked right into that one, if I'm being honest, though. And then Kirk finally asked, what about Edwin not going to jail? How does that sit with you? And that he was still able to graduate from the Royal Academy of Music. Well, Dr. Priest Jones just basically said it doesn't help anything. If he had gone to jail then or now, it wouldn't change or undo where they were at with this in terms of history and science. Kirk asked, what are your feelings about it? How does it strike you emotionally? Dr. Priest Jones became exasperated with why anyone cares about anyone's emotional response to this. Does it make a difference to know that it leaves us with this overwhelming sense of loss and desperation? We are here to protect these specimens, to protect history. So yes, it cuts deep to know that a significant part of that has been destroyed. It will take decades to try and figure out how to restore what he's done to these specimens. And it's time that did not need to be wasted on this. The doctor punctuated that by calling Edwin's crime senseless, committed by an individual who was delusional and obsessed for a community of individuals equally delusional and obsessed. And their meeting ended on that note. 
After talking to the staff at the train, it got Kirk thinking about what it all meant when it came to whether or not all the missing birds from the museum could and should be attributed to Edwin's actions and his actions alone, or if there was really no definitive way to tell because the museum did not keep good enough records of their inventory and any of those birds could have gone missing at any point in time over the course of the previous decade prior to the burglary since the last time it was when they took a comprehensive inventory of everything that they had on hand. What difference would it make to the fly tires? Well, if there were any theory under which all the birds that Edwin stole had been returned to their rightful place, then there would be nothing to worry about from that point forward when it comes to whatever birds and feathers that would continue to circulate throughout the fly tying community. Nobody would need to be concerned if anything actually had come from the Tring Museum, because as far as anyone knew, there was nothing else beyond what has been returned to the museum that could definitively be linked back to Edwin. That was the incentive for the fly tying community. They could move on from the havoc that Edwin wreaked without anyone having to worry about being connected to anything that he took if they could show that the museum engaged in shoddy record keeping. The museum defended itself by saying that when they presented Edwin with a list of all the birds that they counted as being missing, he accepted the list as accurate and took responsibility for everything on it. Kirk was like, okay, he can get on board with the train's list of missing birds being accurate since Edwin admitted to having taken everything that was on it. But what that means is Edwin sold off a large number of bird skins to his buyers. But when the news broke and the word got out that the birds that Edwin was selling were stolen from the Natural History Museum, only 19 of them were ever mailed back. That means that there are still an unknown number of buyers out there who purchased bird skins from Edwin, not knowing at the time that they were stolen, but since then they must have become aware of the burglary. They certainly have been able to put two and two together and have come to realize that the bird skins that they bought from him were stolen, yet have chosen to not send them back which means there is a significant number of fly tires out there who know that they receive stolen goods. If they didn't know it at the time, they certainly know it now. So that has us needing to consider that Edwin isn't the only one out there willing to cross that line. I thought about this for a while too, Dreamers, wondering what I would do if I was faced with this conundrum. Now, granted, I don't have the kinds of money to throw around to be buying thousands of dollars worth of bird skins to begin with. But if for some reason I did and I'm in the financial position that I'm in now, I'd be really, really concerned with the hit that I would be taking financially if I had to surrender the bird skin back to the museum. I don't really know how many of Edwin's customers were just really super wealthy people who had the kinds of money to drop on a hobby like this. Or if perhaps there were a handful of individuals who purchased a skin or two from him with the hopes of either harvesting the feathers and selling them for a profit or using the feathers to make authentic salmon flies to also sell for a profit, maybe it was an investment for some of these people who are really going to find themselves with a financial problem if they go and return the skins to the museum 
and maybe hope that they can get their money back from Edwin or his dad, it's taking a big chance. And then there's that option of filing the lawsuit against Edwin. But how much time and money and trouble is that going to cause, especially if this is international? And what are the chances of Edwin, who could be peppered with civil lawsuits from all over the place, being able to pay up if the lawsuit is even successful? And he's got a substantial amount of fines that he has to pay back to the court, too. Edwin's dad tried working out getting money back to the people that Edwin sold birds to, though we know he didn't pay everyone back. We know of at least one person who returned the skins that they purchased from Edwin, several of them, to the museum and never got any money from Edwin or his father. Is that a financial risk that these people should have to make? Because when they purchased these things from Edwin, as far as they knew, they had no idea that they were stolen. And if the fly tire who bought a skin from Edwin decided to keep it, does that automatically make him as big of a villain in the community as Edwin had become? Is that even really fair? And who was really going to know the truth anyway? Everyone, and I mean everyone, was quick to jump up and exclaim, none of my feathers came from Edwin or the Trang Museum. Even if they did, or if they had no idea whether they did or not, no one was going to stand up and admit that they had Trang Museum feathers. In addition to that, and I was thinking, clearly I was overthinking this, but what if the birds had already been picked apart and they are useless and worthless to the museum anyway? It seems to be common knowledge that unless the birds are intact with their bio data tags, they have no meaning or use to history or to science. So what's the point of sending it back if it's just going to be sitting on a conference room table tossed into a pile of useless bird parts? Or is it just the right thing to do? Return whatever you know for sure came from the museum, no matter what state it is in, no matter how much money you stand to lose, no matter the fallout, because the bird skins were never meant to be had by anyone but the museum for all of time. I guess that seems like the best thing to do. It's hard to put ourselves in the place of these fly tires, they have this passion for these really beautiful salmon flies. But at the same time, they're perfectly okay with picking apart the rarest, most exotic birds in the world to do so. It really doesn't make a whole lot of sense if you really think about it. It's like I had said in a previous episode when I talked about those two extinct birds, the dodo bird and the great auk. Humans covet these birds for the useful things that we can make out of them, or we want to display them in our museums or in our private collections. Yet in order to do so, we hunt them to the brink of extinction. So the only place that we'll ever be able to see them is in their taxidermy form or in picture books, never again in nature. The rare, beautiful, exotic feathers that fly tires find so intoxicating are hard to come by. They're so rare that they are either obscenely expensive or nearly impossible to get. And yet, many of them seem so unsatisfied with using perfectly suitable substitute feathers. Feathers from ordinary birds that can be dyed to mimic the rare or impossible feathers. I mean, in comparison, look at fur. 
Once upon a time, it was so refined and sophisticated to wear clothing made out of animal fur. That is until we got into the 80s and into the 90s when anti-fur campaigns began to pick up steam. And part of that was helped along by celebrities lending their name to the movement. Fur is banned in several countries around the world, but has not yet been banned in the United States. Though California did become the first state in the union to ban the sale of fur in 2019, as California has often been progressive when it comes to issues such as these. And perhaps the way I feel or my opinion about fur might be slanted because I am from California versus other people around the United States who might not feel the same way, which is perfectly fine. I'm not going to sit here and debate people about fur, but from where I'm from, this is kind of how people feel about it. But anyway, even though fur isn't banned across the country, celebrities have stopped, but not all of them, but some. And the media isn't always so nice to celebrities when they are seen wearing fur. Some of them have been flower bombed. And it's just kind of not become so cool as it used to be to wear fur. And really the fashion industry has embraced faux fur. Not only is it cruelty free, it's affordable and the quality is better now than it ever has been. And while I've read some fly tires have embraced and accepted using quality substitutes, we know that there are those who swear by authenticity. The fact that the feathers are so expensive is a testament to that. And just like I overthought that entire monologue about feathers, morality, and using substitutes, Kirk Johnson overthought his quest in attempting to figure out exactly how many birds might still be out there that belong to the museum, how many of the bird fragments Edwin had in his apartment constitutes a whole bird skin, how many bird fragments did Edwin throw away that may never be accounted for, how many specimens do each of the baggies of feathers and bird parts represent one bird skin, was this going to come down to the museum trying to figure out how many orange feathers one Indian crow might have on its breastplate, how many feathers equals one bird, Do two wings equal one bird? Well, once the museum had gone through all the baggies of feathers and pieces of bird parts, the number of missing birds came down from 106 to 64. But having the information that the museum provided him was only half the battle. The other half would be trying to figure out where those birds ended up. Who Edwin sold them to, how he sold them, whether it was on the fly tying forum or on eBay. And we know that the forum scrubbed as much of Edwin's existence as it possibly could. The only way that Kirk was going to have answers to all these questions was to somehow get Edwin to agree to talk to him. One of the things that Kirk got with the documents the museum gave him included notes related to Edwin's interview with Detective Hopkin in the police station's conversation suite. It was then Kirk began to realize what his attorneys were telling the court about the burglary being an act steeped in childish impulsivity wasn't exactly true. Because in the police interrogation notes, they had put together a chronology of what actually happened based on Edwin's confession. 
and it wasn't as impetuous as was told to the Crown Court. Edwin had sent his first email to the museum in February of 2008, a year and four months before he broke in. He had a video chat with his roommate three months before his visit regarding taking pictures of their bird collections. And in the week leading up to the actual break-in, Edwin had gone online and bought the glass cutter and mothballs. And then after the burglary, Edwin explained how he installed additional locks on his closet door to keep people out and bought hundreds of resealable baggies for the feathers so that he could sell them in bunches. He had also given the names of four people who bought birdskins from him. Their names were listed in the documents that he was given. The nine birds that they purchased were listed and the total that they paid for them. $17,000. But what wasn't included on the list were any of the people that Edwin sold Indian crow feathers to. So it had Kirk thinking that might not be the only thing that Edwin left out of his confession. Again, the only way he'd be able to find out what Edwin didn't include when he talked to the police was to talk to him directly. Kirk also wanted to know if the people that Edwin named who had purchased the full skins were among those who returned them to the museum. Then Kirk finally got a call back from Detective Adele Hopkin. She said that she'd be willing to speak to him about the case the next day. From there, Kirk went and retraced what he believed to have been Edwin's footsteps along that obscure footpath to the back of the ornithology building behind the museum. He saw the wall that Edwin had scaled and thought that it wouldn't have been all that difficult for someone young and tall, but he still wondered if Edwin had any help. Kirk resisted the urge to jump up and grab the top of the wall to peer over. With his luck, the guard on duty would be doing his rounds, which they'd most likely be more on top of ever since Edwin Rist came around. So the next day, Detective Hopkin, she came and visited with Kirk. They walked the footpath together. She described what Edwin did and where he did it. She said it was clear that Edwin had done his homework. He had been back on the footpath. Well, the way that Kirk described how the detective spoke, she, interestingly enough, didn't use very many pronouns. She, of course, is... British and she has her British accent, which I can't and won't mimic, but she described the crime. She said, obviously, had been here, came along here, shimmied up there, cut the glass here. By the time Kirk was looking at the window Edwin broke into, it had bars over it. And interestingly enough, the section of barbed wire that Edwin had clipped was still missing. And the detective pointed out where she found the pieces of broken glass with Edwin's blood the piece of latex glove, and the glass cutter. Kirk asked her if she believed that Edwin had done this on his own or if she thought that he had an accomplice. She said that she wouldn't be able to prove it either way. All she can do is follow what the evidence allows her to see. But she still wonders if he did or not. He asked her if she tried finding out from him where the skins that were unaccounted for were at. She said that he gave her some names the ones that he had listed with the $17,000 in bird skins, but that Edwin said he couldn't recall everyone and everything that he sold. The only time and effort that could really be put into searching for them 
was to go to the media and ask the public to return anything that they may have purchased from Edwin. And as I had mentioned, some people did return the skins that they had bought. But when you consider that Edwin was shipping these things all around the world, there was only so much that the police could do to track them down. And the detective basically told Kirk the same thing that he was told when he visited the museum the day before. Once Edwin confessed, that pretty much put an end to any further investigation into the case by the police. Considering all the people, places, and countries that Edwin had sold to, it wasn't feasible for them to try to track down every single bird skin. Nobody's got time for that. Her bosses were not going to approve of putting forth the resources for it, so they just would have to hope that Edwin's buyers would be willing to send back the bird skins on their own. Kirk then asked Detective Hopkin, well, he actually calls her Adele in his book, but I keep picturing Adele, and this is an audio story, so the visual here is this being a detective, not a singer, so I'm going to call her Detective Hopkin. He asked her if she felt like it wasn't really fair that Edwin got off with no jail time, and she said, as the police, you do your bit. The next bit is down to the Crown Prosecutor. The negotiations between barristers and stuff, I'm not necessarily involved in that. Don't necessarily agree with them either, but that's not my part of the story. Kirk asked the detective about the Asperger's. Obviously, it changed the whole sentencing game and pretty much the sole reason Edwin never served any time. When Kirk talked to those who knew Edwin as a fly tire, what they thought about him having Asperger's syndrome, their collective reaction was, what a joke. He asked Detective Hopkins, and she said, that's the million dollar question, I don't know. But then she followed that up by saying that if she was a person who had been diagnosed with Asperger's, she would take exception to anyone suggesting that because they've been diagnosed, it means they will exhibit criminal behavior. Their conversation finished up with Detective Hopkins telling Kirk that if ever there was solid evidence as to where the missing bird skins were located, really solid evidence, she would try to get those back to the museum as well. Kirk came away from his visit to England and the Natural History Museum confident that the curators kept accurate, organized records of their birds and the theory the fly tires had been floating was fallacious. And he believed that there were at least 64 skins still out there and that they could be anywhere in the world. They could have already been pulled apart and turned into salmon flies or they could be stored in the attic of someone who had acted as Edwin's accomplice and might be waiting for a significant amount of time to pass before he begins plucking them for all they're worth. It could even be Edwin himself sitting on a stash of birds waiting for the heat to die down and for the world to forget his name before he goes and starts selling them off himself. Kirk also came away from this visit certain that nobody was going to be putting any effort into looking for those missing skins except for him. And this is what the fly tying community's beef is with Kirk Johnson. His wanting to save the world one dead bird at a time. The story of Edwin Rist, this American in London, who is also a member of a peculiar group of people bewitched by an archaic craft who are equally infatuated with birds so rare and exotic that you'll only likely ever see them in taxidermied form in museums. And all the side roads that we've gone down, 
Victorian era fashion, dead birds perched on hats, hunting for these birds to the brink of extinction, the efforts to save them, and those that couldn't be saved, right down to the last day that the great auk ever existed on planet Earth. Organized wildlife crime, James Bond breaking into crypts, and Edwin and his own obsessions with flutes and fly tying. It's very easy for us to see how this whole thing was a huge distraction for Kirk and the troubles that he often encountered through the work that he did with his refugee project. While that was all it was meant to be for him was something to do to take the pressure off of his day job, the whole thing did turn into a quest to see if there was some measure of justice when all is said and done that could be had, meaning that Kirk Johnson did not feel as though Edwin got an appropriate punishment for the crime that he committed. He didn't exactly put it that way, but he insinuated that justice hadn't been done. And while there is nothing that could change the punishment that Edwin had been dealt, justice could also come in the form of bringing the missing skins back to their rightful place. He experienced what perhaps some of us have experienced as we've gone through this story when it comes to the scope of the impact that Edwin's crime had on history and science. I think a lot of people involved in the story had that same takeaway, an appreciation for what those birds represented. So Kirk wanted to find them if he could. He worked out a strategy since the main thing that he wanted and needed was to talk to Edwin and he was still being ignored or denied. He decided to start poking around the people that Edwin sold birds to. Kirk figured that if he kept talking to enough people, he'd be able to start getting more names of people who had done business with Edwin, and he would be able to begin email correspondences with them, and maybe some of them would give up some useful information, information that might be incriminating for Edwin, possibly even be able to find out if there was someone who was helping Edwin sell the birds that were still out there. And if he could somehow get some dirt on him, maybe then Edwin would change his tune about talking to him. The fly tying people didn't want to have anything to do with Kirk. That was abundantly clear in some of the posts that I went through on the fly tying forum that I talked about in the last couple episodes. Kirk's book didn't necessarily paint them in a negative light per se, but rather he kind of made them out to be a bunch of feather obsessed crazed fly tying maniacs. They didn't feel like an outsider like Kirk had the right to judge anyone in the community and they didn't like him or his book. But now that he had some good information from the museum and the police who investigated the case, he felt like he had some solid ground to stand on from which he could begin asking the hard questions and they might just want to start talking. As it turned out, Edwin only provided the police with the names of four people that he sold birdskins to. Kirk contacted all four of them and two of them got back to him right away and spilled all the beans and sent him the email exchanges that they had with Edwin and anything else that Kirk had asked for. They also provided proof that they sent the birdskins that they bought from him back to the museum. And they also provided Kirk with the names of some other people that they knew purchased birdskins from Edwin too that nobody seemed to know about. 
the dentist from the state of Washington, he was the one who met up with Edwin in London after that African bird watching safari who wanted a firsthand look at some of the birds before giving him a check for $7,000 after which Edwin mailed the birds over to him. He initially started answering some of Kirk's questions, but then he suddenly stopped talking to him altogether. The fourth person Edwin mentioned to police was really the guy who was indirectly responsible for Edwin getting caught. He was the vendor at the Dutch fly fair who showed one of the bird skins that he bought from Edwin to that law enforcement officer from Northern Ireland. When he saw the bird with the old cotton stuffed in its eye holes, it triggered the memory of hearing about the break-in at the museum. And when he went home, he contacted Detective Hopkin. So yeah, that was the fourth person. Kirk sent emails to him, but he never replied. So in talking to the first two buyers that were willing to speak to him, Kirk did get some names and some leads, which he followed up on, and he was able to get a few more names and a few more leads from them. And one of the names mentioned was a man named Ruhan Neithling. He was the CFO of a South African dried fruits and nuts company. Kirk was told that Ruhan had purchased a number of birds of paradise from Edwin, spending $30,000. And the guy was actually more than happy to speak to Kirk, not just through emails, but on the phone too. Ruhan, as it turned out, aside from being the CFO of this fruit and nut company, he was also the financial controller for Coke in Papua New Guinea. And he was also a professional hunter and hunting guide in South Africa. At some point late in his adult life, he had picked up the hobby of salmon fly tying. And like many fly tires, he quickly developed a passion for it. Not only did he tie traditional flies, he made up his own flies, and he even named one Elvis Has Left the Building, which called for feathers from the Kingbird of Paradise. Another one he created he called Blue Uncharmed, which called for feathers from the Bluebird of Paradise. What surprised Kirk was the fact that unlike almost every other fly tire that he tried talking to, who immediately jumped up and denied having anything to do with Edwin and his stolen birds, Ruhan had not a problem talking to Kirk about it at all. But when he told Ruhan that he was told that he purchased $30,000 worth of Birds of Paradise from Edwin, he laughed out loud. He did not have to buy these birds from anyone because he lived in Papua New Guinea, where the Birds of Paradise are from. Now, dreamers, while there are an abundant amount of king birds of paradise in the wild, the blue bird of paradise is considered vulnerable. But Ruhan didn't say that he hunted the birds himself. He told Kirk that he purchased them from other hunters, and he took the feathers that various native tribes used in their headdresses. He insisted that he spent a great deal of time searching for people on the island who would be willing to hunt for those birds for him. He did admit to Kirk that he purchased an Indian crow chestplate from Edwin to the tune of $3,000 and a blue chatterer for $600. He had more feathers on order but never received them, the reason being that Edwin had been caught before he was able to complete the transaction. So next, Kirk was going to get into what Ruhan thought about what Edwin did and what the right thing to do would be when it comes to the items that he did purchase from Edwin. 
And he did go down the list of some of the things that I had mentioned earlier when one contemplates whether or not to return the items to the museum once it became known that they were indeed stolen. Ruhan didn't concern himself with it. He wasn't really all that surprised that Edwin did what he did. When something like those bird feathers are hard to come by, people figure out inventive ways to get them. He didn't think that Edwin stealing the birds was all that serious of a crime. I'm sorry if you're hearing weird noises in the background. Fred is on the bed rolling around and snorting and grunting at the moment. So hopefully my mic is not picking too much of that up. Anyway, Ruhan didn't think that Edwin stealing the birds was all that serious of a crime. He clarified, yes, there's right and there's wrong, but it's no bigger of a deal than your average everyday shoplifter. Kirk challenged him and said, well, you said that there's right and there's wrong. So if it was wrong of Edwin to take those bird skins from the museum in the first place, don't you think you should give it back? And Ruhan was like, well, you see, the thing is, I mean, and he sort of echoed a similar sentiment that I brought up earlier. He had already taken all the feathers off the birds, all of them. So they were essentially no good for their purposes anymore. And I don't think that there's any reason for the body of the bird to be saved once the feathers have been all harvested. So we can assume that he's tossed it out. So if all he had were the feathers, then there was no point. He told Kirk that if there was some good reason why the museum should have the feathers that he had back, then maybe he would return them. But he knows that they don't. The feathers are useless in terms of science to the museum, so he doesn't see any reason to send it back. He would need a very clear and definitive explanation from the museum as to what they wanted the feathers for and what they were going to do with them for him to even consider sending them back. He had not an issue with the fact that the birds and their feathers rightfully belonged to the museum. He kind of just shrugged it off. And as this conversation went along, Kirk began to understand why Ruhan was saying the things that he was saying and why he feels the way that he feels about this. Kirk asked him about extinction and whether he, as a hunter himself, is concerned about losing a species to extinction. And Ruhan was like, nope, not in the least. Okay, and can you explain why? And he said, because things are meant to go extinct. Everything eventually goes extinct. It's the way it is. And Kirk said, well, isn't that sort of nihilistic? Doesn't that kind of thinking take away from what you should be doing to care for the things that God has put on this earth if you just think everything is eventually going to completely vanish? And Ruhan was like, yeah, exactly. And this is his exact quote to Kirk. Your responsibility is to align your world with God's world. His will is not for this dimension to exist into eternity. His will is not for this dimension to survive the next 50 years or whatever it is. Do you believe in evolution? Kirk asked. Another direct quote? Nope, not at all, not even a little. The fossil records do not confirm evolution. You want to talk about belief systems? Evolution is a religion. It's nothing more than that. It's been conjured up. 
It's a knowledge base that was given to man by the fallen watchers, which is a group of angels that do not agree with God. Then Kirk asked, well, how do you think these birds became so unique, if not through evolution? And Ruhan answered, God created them that way. So now we see why Ruhan is so nonchalant about the birds and how he is able to brush aside the notion of returning the feathers he still had to the museum unless they provided him with a super good legit reason why. Kirk tried one last time to get Ruhan to grasp the importance the birds were to science, studying the rise of mercury levels, for example, in the oceans, and how it was for the betterment of humanity and the planet. And here's another direct quote from the fruit and nut man. Man is not going to save this earth. He has got no chance of saving this earth because God has written it to be destroyed. What these scientists are doing is they are playing God. They are refusing to acknowledge that what preserves this earth is the power of God, not the ability of man to read mercury levels. So Ruhan's final answer, nope, not returning anything to the museum. The planet is already doomed and the scientists are nothing more than fallen angels. And with that, Kirk was able to knock two of the birds off the missing list, even though they would not be going back to the museum, not anytime soon, not in this lifetime. But Kirk Johnson kept at it, though, determined to track down as many of the birds as he possibly could. He thought he'd found another blue chatterer floating around somewhere in Denmark, but then he found out it was among the ones that had already been sent back to the museum. More time had passed, no more leads were coming, and the ones that had were going nowhere. All the posts that Edwin had ever made on the fly tying forums trading floor had long been deleted, so that was an impossibly dead end too. He wasn't even allowed to talk to anyone on the website about it because of their no Edwin policy. Kirk's quest to find the birdskins dragged on unsuccessfully for several years, all the while still trying to keep up with his humanitarian work involving the refugees. The search for the birdskins became a long-term endeavor where he had begun to build friendships with some pretty important people within the fly tying community. So he had made friends with these individuals on Facebook and he would spend hours going through their posts and their pictures looking for anything that might be related to any of the bird skins missing from the museum. He joined private Facebook groups where all they did was buy and sell bird feathers and skins for fly tying. He spent more countless hours looking through those photos in those groups, printing up pictures of anything that he thought might be linked to the feather heist. Kirk described his pile of evidence as eventually turning into folders of evidence that eventually turned into an accordion file of evidence that eventually turned into a filing cabinet of evidence. After years of rummaging through all the Facebook groups, getting as much information as he could about Edwin, every single detail of his existence, gaining full knowledge of the entire world of the feather trade. Beyond Ruhan, Kirk still hadn't tracked down any more of the missing birdskins. He still didn't know if Edwin had an accomplice, and Edwin was still refusing to speak to him. Whenever Kirk had run out of places to go, he always found his way back onto the fly tying forum to painstakingly go through their posts to see if there was ever anything about Edwin or the birdskins or the Tring Museum that they had missed. 
But then Kirk found the Wayback Machine, which by the time he found it had been around for about 10 years. Kirk said in his book, by 2009, the Wayback Machine had three petabytes worth of screenshots. I didn't even know there was such a thing as a petabyte. Sounds like a snack. But a petabyte is actually 1,024 terabytes. What's a terabyte? That's 1,000 gigabytes. I believe there is a version of the iPhone 13 that has a one terabyte option. So the archive stuff on the Wayback Machine is massive. I found stuff on the Wayback Machine for many of the cases that we've covered over the course of our 200 plus episodes. But seriously, I don't go searching there. If I get directed there, so be it. But unless I'm really, really desperate for something, I won't go looking around the Wayback Machine. Reddit too. I hate searching on Reddit for anything. But somebody like Kirk, he's the type of person that's going to sit there and try putting in URLs until the Wayback Machine stops telling him that they don't have that page archived. And he finally did find all the posts that had been removed from the classic fly tying forum. Some of the same ones that I found. I was looking for discussions about Edwin. Kirk was looking for Edwin's posts offering the bird skins for sale. I wasn't really interested in those. And for a while, Edwin had posted feathers and skins on the forum. But eventually, he began posting the links to his eBay page because forum members were complaining about how high the prices were for the items that he was selling. And in the end, Kirk was able to track down 15 more bird sales that Edwin had made back in 2010. But he also discovered that someone else was making posts for Edwin, a person who went by the screen name Goku, G-O-K-U. I probably don't have to tell you that Kirk was excited as I'll get out to find what he believed to be an accomplice. Kirk was able to glean from the post that Goku was making that he was working on behalf of Edwin. He was the one making all the posts. He was the one putting up pictures of the bird skins. He was taking all of the orders and doing all of the wheeling and dealing when it came to prices. He had stories as to why the bird skins were being sold, similar to how Edwin had. He told the buyers that the money was going to a student friend of his. He redirected interested buyers to Edwin's eBay page. Edwin even actively commented on Goku's posts. The thing he didn't do was post prices. If you wanted to know, you had to contact him directly and privately. The last post that Goku made was the night before Edwin was taken into custody. So, of course, Kirk had to know. Who is Goku? Okay, dreamers, I know this episode ran kind of long. I thought that this was going to be the last part of the series and I kind of wanted it to be because I like even numbers and I wanted this to end at six, but it's going to have to go to seven. I kept writing and writing, hoping that I would somehow be able to get this story cut down, but I don't want to leave any of the details out. So there's going to be a seventh part. It won't be too long. I do have most of it written. I want to say maybe about 70% of it written because I was trying to finish. 
but I decided to go ahead and cut it off here before I hit the two hour mark. So it will be available soon because I have, like I said, some other things in the works for you guys. Don't forget to look up California Dreaming on Facebook, like the page and join the discussion group. Follow us on Twitter at California Pod and Instagram at California Dreaming Pod. Don't forget that on Patreon, I have part one of the eight part series entitled The Only Way Out available right now, unlocked for anyone, Patreon or non-Patreon to be able to listen to so you can have a sample of what Patreon is all about. If you have a dollar or two to spare, you can listen to the rest of the series and support the production of this show. Just go to patreon.com, search for California Dreaming. You have to scroll down through the post and go back to the ones entitled The Only Way Out. It's out of Carbondale, California, and we take a really deep dive into the death of Morgan Ingram. Feel free to reach out to me with case suggestions. The email is californiapod at gmail.com. I want to thank you all so much for listening to this exceedingly long episode. I'm sorry it dragged on. I was really trying to squeeze this into six. But anyway, I'm your host, Roseanne. Until next time, sweet dreams. <laughs>